Hi, this is Danielle Krissa from The Jaws Curator, and this is episode 218 of Art for Your Ear. Today's episode, the very first episode of the new year, is supported by my lovely friends at Create Magazine and their upcoming call for art. This call is for their 2022 women's print issue with guest curator Eliza Ali. She is the founder, director, and editor-in-chief of Art She Says. Now, this is a special edition issue open to all women-identifying and non-binary artists. This call is open to artists from all over the world, and all styles and media are welcome. Even though this is an annual women's edition, Create Magazine invites you to submit if this opportunity feels in alignment for you. The deadline is coming up at the end of January, January 30th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to be exact. To learn more and to submit, pop over to createmagazine.com slash submit. That's createmagazine, all one word, dot com slash submit. All right, speaking of fabulous female artists, I can hardly believe who I have as my guest today. I studied her in art history, and now here we are, chatting about her childhood. <laughs> Very much a pinch-me art moment happening over here. Radioactive cats and vengeful goldfish, not to mention zillions of squirrels, foxes, and people covered in cheese doodles. Yep, American artist Sandy Scoglin is on the podcast. I had so many questions heading into this interview, and Sandy generously answered all of them. So, let's just jump right in, shall we? Calling Sandy in New Jersey. Hi, Sandy. Welcome to Art for Your Ear. Well, thank you, Danielle. It's really nice to meet you. You too. I am having a bit of a fangirl moment. I can't believe you said yes. And do you know why I reached out to you? No, I have no idea. Well, I mean, I'm a super fan, but I just felt like, oh, she's too big and fancy. She'll never do this. And then Mm -hmm. somebody messaged me and said, did you see who just commented on one of your Danielle Krissa art posts? And I was like, what? And I went and looked and I was like, oh my God. So then I quickly messaged you and said, hi, want to come on the podcast? <laughs> I have been following you for a while. Really? And yeah, I mean, I just got uh, one of the things about the pandemic for me is that Instagram, I feel has been very healthy. Yeah. Very healthy. I mean, I'm 75 years old. I mean, you know, I'm really of the, you know, the generation from I post World War II. So um, I, well, I mean, I, I never wanted or thought about or cared about uh, social media, right. you know, and I believed all of the, um, uh, the negative, you know, the negative perceptions of it. Uh, but I decided to do it um, shortly before COVID fell on us mm. <laughs> so um it has become a very uh i think very uh nutritional um thing for me especially yeah. uh instagram and so one of the things that has happened for me is discovering like your work hmm. and i don't know how i came upon it but i just remember seeing like little sculptures and this spontaneity uh in your you know the reuse of things and i I just thought wow this person's 
really working fast, you know, that you're, you walk into the studio and it's sort of like one, two, three, four, that's it, you know, whereas for me, <laughs> it's kind of like an iceberg in a lot of, in a lot of my work, not all of it, of course. So, so yeah. I'm a really great admirer of, of you and oh, your thoughts. Thank you so much. My goodness. Well, I know that's one of my questions for you is like, who? the amount of time and thought and planning and everything that goes into each single one of your works. But Sandy, we're not starting there. We are going back to you being a little kid and where you grew up. And uh -huh. if you were um, assembling large groups of eggs and um, cheese puffs and <laughs> animals back then. So yes, where, where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in Massachusetts a little bit, but but I kind of like to say all over the United States uh, because I lived in, I'm one of four children and my parents are classic uh, World War II, uh, you know, participants. My mother was a nurse. My father was in the Navy during World War mm -hmm. II. And uh, I mean, I, I remember the, almost, with, almost with a sense of hauntedness um, where we lived uh, when I was, you know, one, two, three, four years old. I mean, it, it really was so um, positive, mm. <laughs> so positive. There was just a sense of relief in the, you know, in what I experienced, you know, as a child, culturally, Every, everything just seemed to be fine, great. Um, I remember wondering why don't why doesn't everybody move to the United States? I mean, because I didn't understand immigration or how how anything worked. I mean, I I probably was three or four years old, but I I just had this you know it was a it was a very uh, I can only use the word positive positive mm -hmm. spirit you know for say the first six years of mm -hmm. my life. Um, and my grandparents on both sides came over from their countries. My grandparents on my father's side came over from, from Sweden. And I still have many relatives in Sweden. And mm. uh, those Swedish uh, family members are very aware of the family tree. So occasionally they come over and there's a lot of connection. Uh, and then my mother was born in Dundee, Scotland. And oh. actually, yeah, actually, she didn't come here to the U.S. till she was three. Oh, wow. But, uh, but there was just uh, this, um, uh, I, I don't know, there's just, it was just a, feel, a very good feeling as, as I was growing up. And uh, we lived in um, housing developments. My parents <clears throat> were, um, their taste in, um, in where we moved was was towards a, a, a community, an already made community or already existing community, mm -hmm. which you kind of get, especially if, uh, let's say it's a house in the suburbs, but if it's a new house, among other new houses, then everyone kind of, you know, collaborate, uh, you know, gets to know yeah. each other. Mm -hmm. So um, throughout my whole like uh, pre-college days, uh, I was born in, uh, in Weymouth, Mass., which is near Boston. Then I moved, we moved to Portland, Maine, actually Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Mm -hmm. 
And from there, we moved to um, uh, Connecticut and from Connecticut to California, to oh. Orange, Orange, California, which was like uh, a nu- nuclear explosion. <laughs> I bet. In my head. <laughs> How old were you for that move? Were you a teenager? I was, yeah. yeah. So it was the time when you're very, I was so vulnerable uh, socially and uh, the social constructs from going from uh, Hartford, Connecticut, a suburb called Windsor, Connecticut, where everyone was still wearing bobby socks and loafers, okay, yeah. to my first day at school in Orange, California, where everyone was wearing heels, nylons, girdles, and they were all teasing and bleaching their hair like crazy. <laughs> wow. So the, the one thing I remember, Danielle, is saying, thank God I did not wear my bobby socks and loafers to school that day. <laughs> Would have been the only one. And it was, a, it was a large school. I think they had 3,000 students. So, yeah. So it was, that was a very, very large thing. But I mean, when I, when I look at that lifestyle, because it, it, it came about through my father um, being involved, working for Shell Oil Company. Mm. So when the um, Swedish people, my Swedish relatives came over from uh, Sweden, for some reason, there's a connection I'll, I'll probably never find out about, but they went into the oil business. Hmm. Very odd. So most, most Nordic uh, people went you know, over to Minnesota into farming, but my family, um, uh, my uncle, my grandfather, my father, all ran gasoline stations. So when I say they went into oil, you know, it's not like they had any money. It was just, this was just the thing that they did. And uh, what happened is my father hurt his back very badly, could not continue running the gasoline station. So he went to work as an executive. And that's that's sort of executive migration is similar to um, the service, the, you know, uh, Army, Navy, whatever, um, and uh, they they moved us periodically um, every three, four, five years. So that mm. so that's what um, promoted or created that that moving around. How did you feel about that moving around? Did you was it just sort of an adventure with your family, or were you like, no, yeah. I don't want to go? No, I mean, there certainly are friends that you're going to miss. I mean, absolutely, uh, that, that is sad, but the, um, the, uh, gestalt or the feeling overall, even within the family, all the children, it was always, we always were happy and excited because it was like, just like you said, a new adventure. Yeah. New adventure. I mean, you know, who knows what's going to happen. I'll make new friends. Um, and uh, yeah, it was definitely positive for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, generally, it's a trajectory of moving towards more money, you know, he would, and a right. higher position. So we'd be happy for my father for that. Right. Okay, so now during all that time, were you an art making kid? Did you yes. draw? Did you create with your hands? What were you doing? Well, um, I, uh, 
I think that we should even go back further to the fact that I had polio. Oh, before all of that, before all of that, I had polio, which is a huge um, uh, part of my psyche because um, it was pretty serious for me. So I was three years old. My brother was one year old. We both got it. Oh my God. And I got it uh, in the, uh, well, it, it's, it's a virus yeah. and the virus attacks uh, your muscles. And um, they at that time had no vaccines uh, or anything. So they'd have these periodic um, epidemics and it, it happened to be one. I was born in 46, I was three, so it must've been 1949. And uh, they put us in this floating hospital. Um, again, you know, what are we gonna do? It's, you know, it's contagious. We don't know how it's going to spread. I mean, I thank God in retrospect that my parents didn't get it, you know, like, I don't know, but I guess the vulnerable people were the young people. So, um, so that kind of marked me in a way, really, um, because I uh, do have some paralysis in my left shoulder. And uh, my mother used to take me out of school to um, get physical therapy when mm -hmm. I was in first grade, stuff like that. So that's kind of an important part of this, I, you know, me becoming an artist or activity or your consciousness, you know, and, uh, but coupled with that, I mean, as far as I can remember, I, I, I loved to draw. I mean, it really mm -hmm. came from drawing. Um, the other thing that happened that's kind of very old and interesting is that I was, my mother was left-handed and so was I left-handed, but when the polio struck, which was my left side, I had to change hands. So I, my right hand became my dominant hand because the left hand was affected by the polio. So that's also a kind of crazy, crazy yeah. kind of detail. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's very crazy. I mean, Danielle, I, I can remember some really in, interesting things happened in the hospital. Like I remember, uh, cause they put us in wards, you know, open wards with beds, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of children all together. And, uh, the nurses were very harsh and curt and not nice. And I remember, I remember causing a disturbance, uh, I love um, it already in the ward <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, not stopping, uh, I think, I believe I was crying for my mother or something like that. Oh, my God. But the nurse goes over to, at the time, you know, there were telephones on the wall. So I can still see this in my mind's eye. The nurse goes over to the telephone on the wall, picks up the phone and tells me, I'm calling your mother now and she's going to come over. So she talked into the phone and then she hung up and I quieted down and I waited and I waited and I waited. And of course my mother never came because she tricked me. Yes. Right? So, you know, there, there I am at like three years old. Okay. That's an adult person who really manipulated me. You know, I mean, I knew that I knew what happened by the end wow. of the day. I knew that. So anyway, these are just little anecdotes that kind of shape your Oh you know, yeah, for sure. And what a way to mess with you too, because then if you did believe her, now you think your mom doesn't want to come and see you like what? 
That's crazy. Yeah, no, I, no, that, you knew your mom would come. Yeah. That, what a crazy experience. My dad was born in 1945. Uh-huh. And um, he ended up getting really, really sick, but it wasn't polio. He had some sort of weird intestinal thing, but it was right around sort of the polio time. And, and he said that his mother just freaked out because that's what she thought was happening. And uh, he said it was just so present in, in their childhood, you know, and it's, it's yeah. amazing. And, and your brother was fine. He he escaped uh, pretty uh, with no paralysis. Wow. So the the virus can affect uh, different parts of your body. You yeah. know, people were in iron lungs who couldn't breathe. And God, I you know what a horrible. How, how long thing. were you in that hospital? Like, how long were you away from your family? I do not know. Wow. I don't know. the The people that would know are all passed away now. Right. So. Yeah. I don't know. It would take some deep research. I imagine I could find out. I would That's think I could find out, you know, so in the archives, of, you know, but anyway, yeah. uh, it, it had to be a considerable period of time because, yeah. Yeah. Oh my you know, gosh. and, and the other thing, the other thing is that, uh, I mean, we're not involved, but the way they run children in hospitals now, they don't to, you know, they don't keep the, uh, parents away. Right. I think parents sleep there and there's a lot of effort to you know and for mm -hmm. sure that was not the case with me so there you have again a kind of you know a construction of a solitary person right yeah that's so interesting yeah, yeah. yeah. wow um okay so i want to jump back to california for a right. second okay. so there's blonde teased hair and high heels so mm -hmm. did you uh, did you sort of assimilate into that did your hair get big did you get high heels Everything, everything, <laughs> all of it, one hundred percent. Oh my gosh, I love it. Um, and so, at that age, are you thinking I'm going to be an artist when I grow up, or, no, or what are you thinking about? No. no. Well, I, I, I've always, I always took an art course. Mm -hmm. So you know, whether and was always drawing and doing things. So. Um, we're now in California, so I'm going to graduate from high school in California. And um, I liked art, um, but I was, I liked everything. I mean, I loved school. I loved school. I, I mean, wasn't too. a rebellious uh, type of person. I, I didn't even like summer vacation because I was, couldn't wait to get back to school to be you know, in, in this uh, row of people and, and, you know, participating. I loved all that structure. Um, but uh, uh, so we are talking about the culture, right, of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of uh, California at that time. So I was thinking about art. And I was also um, very aware of, um, how shall I put it? I wanted the best for myself. I wanted a world in terms of college because right. I knew I'd go on to college. I mean, I had very good grades. Uh, my parents, you know, were there for me. That was going to be the next step. And um, at that time, if you can think about it, in the high school, the, 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 uh, uh, the feeling was, was so sexual. I mean, it was so sensual and sexual. Uh, I mean, because this was the had, early '60s. Now, yes, I mean, uh, you know, you have these young ladies, age 16, and they're looking like you know a Hollywood movie star, right? Taking an hour to get ready to 
to go to school. Uh, and the, the boys in, in that school, the cool thing was to be a surfer, of course. Of course, sure, yeah. So, you know, what, uh, what would happen is as soon as the bell rang, the surfers would run out and go to the beach and surf. And so there was this very huge, highly esteemed culture of the beach. And I really didn't want anything about, I didn't want that. I, I thought it was horrible. I, uh, because we moved a lot, I critiqued in my own mind, each school system, you know, like, mm. no, this isn't a good a school system as blah, 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 you know, right. <laughs> back in, uh, you know, in Maine. So uh, I really felt it was a terrible school. And uh, I, of course, did well, but I wanted to go to a place that was going to give me, support me more in, in mm. terms of, of um large ideas about Western culture. I've always been interested in philosophy, those kinds of things. And this particular school had absolutely no, you know, there was no language about that at all. Right. So consequently, I only applied to women's colleges because I, I was exhausted by the sexual vibes mm. in the classroom. I mean, I just felt as though, it was taking more energy than I wanted to put into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I only applied to women's colleges, uh, Smith College, Wellesley College, uh, a number of them. I think I must have applied to at least six. <laughs> and uh, Smith is the one, one that I decided to go to. I'm trying to lead up to your, your question, art, back to art. So Smith, of the women's colleges had a uh, vibrant art, uh, arts or art uh, uh, department. Mm. Many of the women's colleges did not, they were small schools, but Smith did. And so that was why I ended up choosing to, to go there. Mm. Um, so yeah, so art for me is me, it's just me. It's not like there was a before art. It, right. It, it, I'm the it, same it, way. It was sort of like birth and mm -hmm. then art. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I read that you did painting there. Yeah, it's it's Smith. Yeah. What? It's yeah, Smith. It's Smith. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in truth, um, the, the fact is that Smith College did not have a very good art department. <laughs> <laughs> they had a good brochure that said, yeah, right. they had one and it was all women, which was very cool and strange. So, um, so there was sort of that, you know, that was all very satisfying to me and everyone, everyone was really dedicated to, uh, culture. I mean, it was just mm. every, every person there, every, every student, every faculty member, it was just, you know, you were always talking about issues reading poetry, it, you know, it was just so, it was lovely for, for that. Um, but uh, you're right, I majored in painting there <laughs> at Smith. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they had, they had no photography courses, um, but I did do one, I made one up, oh. and to the credit of Smith, uh, I made one up, uh, I made up a, a, an individual study with a faculty member in, th in theater who agreed to do it. And I did a stop motion animation. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. 
in my on on Christmas vacation in, in my grandparents' house. <laughs> wow! So, uh, so cool. yeah, so yeah, so it was you know it, I mean they respect the you know the school generally speaking you know respected your desires and tried to support you, which was really what I wanted. So it was it was all good, um, but. Uh, I think you you mentioned, you know, I went to France for my yes. year. So that's another, you know, uh, a wonderful opportunity. I mean, heaven, my goodness, you know, um, yeah. that, that that worked out. So what you what you do, though, you you uh, are, you know, at the time I went to, to France, to Paris, and you're with a smaller group of Smith students and you're taking courses at the Sorbonne and the Louvre actually has a school as well. Um, so it was just a feast, if you can imagine. I can't even, uh, it just sounds like a dream. Unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable, you know, especially for, you know, an American from, you know, uh, a modest suburban housing tract <laughs> in Los Angeles at the time, right? In, in a suburb of Los Angeles. So, so there was that. I mean, that, I, I, I don't even know. I've never tried to kind of condense that experience into, into anything more than saying, you know, I did do that. Mm -hmm. um, in doing that, no one can paint or draw or do anything. I mean, you could, of course, on your own, but the courses were all art history. Okay. So what happened is I came back uh, and uh, I actually didn't have much of a portfolio because that entire junior year I was doing art history. Mm. So I remember my uh, advisor kind of scolding me and saying, I'll never, I'll never let any student ever go to Paris again. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> that was a big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's looking, he's looking at my work and, you know, <laughs> going, what did I do? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not one to, um, you know, when negative things come, I don't just, I don't, it doesn't affect me very much. It's more an intellectual thing of, oh, really? Right. <laughs> you know, why are you, what, what are you, you know, I don't see anything wrong with my work, you know? So, um, so I, I basically uh, was sort of ended the Smith College experience with a, um, a very narrow portfolio of drawings, some etchings, uh, mm. and, and some paintings, but that was it. Um, I did do sculpture as well. Um, very primitive materials, um, not, I mean, tiny classes. I think there were three people in my sculpture class. Wow. Yeah, again, a kind of an era that's probably no longer, you know, um, I mean, none of my courses were ever canceled. It's just whatever you signed up for, that's what it was going to be. And, you, and I made friends, of course, with people in, in these small classes. Um, but uh, uh, when I graduated, I was completely lost because, mm -hmm. um, first of all, I had spent four years in this odd social environment. And I actually felt like I had to learn to live in a more, with the more balanced, you know, social uh, reality of, of men and women. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I remember that. I, I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, things are, you know, really different out here. <laughs> yeah. Did you go back? Did, were you back in California or where did you go when you graduated? 
That's a good question. No, uh, they already moved oh, from okay. California, my family, yeah. and they moved to Detroit. Oh. So that's where one of my uh, sort of uh, interesting stories comes from, besides working at Disneyland when I was in what? high school. <laughs> How did we miss that? Well, uh, I, one of the things about our family is that work is, work is everything. Mm. And I actually think they are right to a very large extent. It may not be everything, but it certainly uh, is very helpful in terms of getting through life. Mm. If you find the right work, but in any event, finding the right work or what I like to call a meaningful struggle, that's another conversation. But I worked all the time. I mean, uh, summer, you worked here, you worked there. So one of the, the uh, jobs I did when I was in high school was working at the space bar in Tomorrowland in Disneyland. Oh my God. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that was, that was interesting because, um, it was not looked upon as pop or, uh, kitsch by, by that culture of, in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's not because it's a kind of a culture unto itself, which is really focused on the entertainment business. So, mm your kings and queens and important people, you know, are going to be in within that. Uh, so getting a job at um, uh, Disneyland, which actually was Universal Paramount, um, because it was a hot dog, not really a hot dog stand, but a, a the space bar was like a snack stand, you know, okay. with sandwiches and small things. And um, so uh, doing that, um, we, uh, uh, how can I put it? Um, it, it? It was, I felt proud to do it. Let's right. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Not, you know, not embarrassed. It wasn't strange. Everyone, I was one of the lucky ones, so to speak. Yeah. But then another, Did you have thing, to dress up as an alien or anything. No. Um, but you would be, you would be where, you, you know, you would be, be working and, um, and you would hear Walt is coming. Walt is coming. <laughs> So everyone, which is Walt Disney is wandering around, you know, the, uh, uh, oh my God. the park. So, uh, you know, that would mean everyone had to kind of spruce up and yeah. whatever. And uh, I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to um, uh, wait on the, on James Garner. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. 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 He, uh, he came to to the uh, uh you know the, the stand mm -hmm. and uh yeah I, I think he bought a I don't know what he bought but yeah so, <laughs> that's so crazy so it's just a strange yeah yeah what a neat experience because uh, yeah growing up there it's in your backyard basically Disneyland yeah, yeah my son just had his first summer job last year um okay. the summer that he turned 15 and we live in a really touristy area in Canada this sort of um valley that's our population doubles in the summer because everyone comes for, and he oh. worked at a fun park. Um, uh -huh. And it's like the perfect, most ridiculous job to have because um, growing up here, I grew up here, left for 22 years and came back. Okay. And I met my husband in Toronto and he, I'm telling him all these things about, you know, we'd water skiing and like, it was, you know, and he <laughs> right. said, he's like, and he grew up in like Northern Ontario. And he said, so, did you grow up in a Juicy Fruit commercial? 
<laughs> and it was based, I was like, Perfect. yeah, kind of. And um, our area is kind of called California North because it's very much that kind of culture. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so my son, yeah, his first job was at this fun park with like, you know, mini golf and water bumper boats and whatever. And it's like, Dude, right. you're living the dream. Like that's, that's <laughs> how you do a summer job in California North. And you did the real California yeah. Disneyland yeah. dream. So yeah. amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, okay. So now you're in Detroit. Right. So uh, my family moved to Detroit and, and during that period, that was when I was still at Smith College, 66, 67. I'm going to go to Paris. And again, I have a summer job. So I'm looking through, I have to get a summer job. So, you know, between uh, semesters. So I'm looking through the paper and looking for as much money as I possibly can. And I see an ad for a bakery factory called Sanders Bakery Factory, the night shift from, I think it was something like, uh, I think I used to go leave at like 11 at night and come home something like six or seven in the morning. But anyway, I applied for that job, uh, which it was in uh, a bakery factory. I mean, a huge factory that, um, but I was in the decorating department. So it was campy as all get out. I mean, it was so unique. Uh, It was all women. And um, you would stand on these, next to these conveyor belts and have this heavy, a sack of uh, frosting on your shoulder and you would write happy birthday as the cake went by or you might be the edge girl and you would do those fancy edges around the around the cake so they had you know a a very large array of um, different cakes which they sold throughout the the Detroit area the best part of it was that then I made $15 an hour. Now think about it. Yeah. Very highly paid. Yes. Very highly paid. So, I mean, it was, it was difficult. Sure. I mean, it was physically difficult. uh, And to work at night like that was, you know, on the one hand, it was horrible. It's sort of the, it's sort of like in, I look at it as the humor and the horror, you know, in, 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 in the world, so to speak, that w- that had a good combination of those two things, you know, the hor- horror of, you know, this incredibly uh, uh, synthetic activity, highly paid, everyone's seriously, you know, chugging along, doing their work, you know, I mean, uh, it was very, very interesting. So yeah, it must have been exhausting. It, it was. And um, the other thing that happened is I'm a small person and I'm, I'm not naturally very strong. And some of the activities that you had to do the I couldn't do. Um, so the, the supervisor, after I'd been working there for about a week, came over and said, you know, you're really not strong enough for this job. And I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. And she goes, but I think you have talent. I'm going to put you over here and you can do painting the baby faces. <laughs> so the baby face cakes, the baby face cakes were 
you had a uh, you had an icing like gesso. In other words, it was yeah. it was frosting, cooked frosting, like on a petty four. And you used a brush from food coloring and you copied a photo of what people would send in. You copied it on top of the cake, just oh, manually. Yeah. Just oh, that was so um, so that's really what I did. I mean, every, you know, every now and then I work on the assembly line, but basically I did the baby face cakes. <laughs> this sounds like the weirdest movie that I would watch over and over and over. Um, now, did you have like with the assembly line painting baby faces? Did you have a time like you must have been on a time set so that you could get as many baby faces done? Like, so how long did you have per baby face? I think it was 15 minutes. Wow. And are these pictures of people's actual babies and they want their baby's face on the cake? Or was it like a random? It w there was a stylized baby face. Okay. That they were all had already done. Someone else had been doing them. You oh, know, okay. That, I see. Yeah. And, so so my first the first thing I had to do was to uh, copy that right copy right. that way that looked um, so that was easy so you know I just do that and then um, you would either a male or a female and I can't remember quite why you one was a male and one was a female <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there were um, ra the races so dark-skinned yeah blonde people not uh, uh you know white people with brown hair yeah so, so there were the varieties um but basically it was uh you know kind of a a baby a stylized baby face oh my gosh that is nuts okay so when you're it's just so funny talking about it in hindsight because it factors into your work so much now, like, like the, the, like all the cakes going by writing happy birthday, five zillion times, like baby face, baby face, baby face. And then all of your work in repetition, was there anything in your head in that time thinking, wow, this is really interesting, this repetition, or were you not there yet? I wasn't there yet. Okay. I definitely was. I wasn't anywhere until I got to grad school. That's yeah. that's my feeling. Uh, How uh, long was that gap? Did you go right away, or did you take time off? Well, what happened? I graduate from Smith, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm coming down from the palace, basically, because you know those schools are, yeah. they're very closed communities. All yeah, of you're them. kind of living this like ideal little yes, art life. Exactly. And so, did you move back in with your parents? Yes, had yeah. to. Same, no money. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Yep. No, no money. And um, they didn't want me. I mean, they didn't hate me, but you know, they, <laughs> they're, you know, they're, I mean, there were three other children besides myself, you know, right. so they wanted me to get on the road. Right. <laughs> we're like, we already raised you. Off you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you went to this great school. You lived in Paris. I mean, you know, so that was the end of any money, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so my parents come to my graduation at Smith and then we all go home. Uh, and uh, by that time, that's when, uh, let's see, by then we were living in um, Illinois. Oh, Oh yeah, we, we, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't remember the exact, uh, you know, uh, uh, where we lived in, yeah. in uh, we lived in a suburb of Chicago for sure. Okay. Um, Naperville, 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 Illinois. So I go home to Naperville, Illinois, and I'm looking for a job and it's 1968. 
That's when I graduated. That time, in, in fact, my entire life up to up, about 1968, I mean, everything just, the doors just opened. I mean, there just was never any, you know, I mean, I'd apply for a job, I'd get the job. And, and that's what happened here. I needed a job. And I, um, my mother was a teacher by that time. She had originally been a nurse, but mm-hmm. had morphed into teaching. And she, I'm, and she was like a no-nonsense kind of person. So I, she said, well, you know, just go out there and, you know, get a teaching job. They need people, you know. So uh, I looked in the papers. I interviewed for Batavia Junior High School. And I got actually two jobs. <laughs> oh um, they offered me a choice of, okay, do you speak, you speak French? Do you want to teach French? Or do you want to teach art? And so I chose art and uh, that was a, that was really tough, really tough. Um, Not that I couldn't do it. It just was like, oh my God, you know, this is, I mean, you know, junior high school art. Yeah. I'm with you. (laughs) And no experience. (laughs) So, um, so it was a year of, I mean, tremendous stress, um, but I think I did a good job. I did the best I could. I saved a lot of money and, um, and it was so positive. I mean, it's really positive to feel like you bottomed out. I think that's, I was, I, I was bottomed out. I mean, it was, it was a severe sense that I cannot live like this. You know, I, I mean, I can't spend the rest of my life teaching junior high school it wasn't so much living at home with my parents. It was really the job. Yeah. Um, So uh, what I ended up doing is uh, halfway through while I was teaching junior high school, uh, I was pretty lost about, well, what medium, I mean, and again, my, I would, I would characterize my education as being, you know, more philosophical than practical. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so I really had no clue where to go to graduate school. Um, but I was living in the Midwest. So, uh, my mentor at school at at Smith, he used to talk about the university of Iowa, Mm. um, which to me registered nothing. I know no idea. And also, um, I was interested in printmaking then, mm. Danielle, because I started to um, formulate when or remember or define when I actually had a, uh, an aesthetic feeling. I mean, a feeling that I'm actually looking at art because mm-hmm. I had never really had that, you know, everything was reproduction or whatever, or decoration, or, you know, I used to sell comic, make comic books and sell them to my uh, uh, classmates when I was in eighth grade, seventh grade, uh, Katie Keene, Archie and Veronica, you know, so all of that kind of very illustration-y uh, uh, culture. And I remember when I was at Smith, one of my classmates was definitely much more sophisticated than I was. And she was doing these etchings and I just was flabbergasted at their presence, their physical Mm. presence. So that catapulted me to look for schools that, that, um, that 
uh, had good printmaking uh, programs. And the two that came up were the University of Iowa and the University of Arizona. Hmm. I actually went to the university, both of them, I, I drove or flew, I must have flown to uh, Arizona and looked at them, walked around. And um, I, I chose Iowa because it was green. <laughs> uh, Arizona's really, uh, really beige, you know, yeah. it's very, very desert. Very sun-baked, yep. <laughs> yes. um, but it was the most lucky choice I could ever have made because um, it, it, first of all, it was a three-year program, which I really believe most people need the three years um, mm -hmm. because you're coming to a new place. You have no idea where you're even going to, uh, you know, you have to get an apartment. You, uh, where is the, uh, where's this, where's that? There's a, there's the whole year of adjustment. And then uh, you're out the next year. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, what the you just sort of get into a groove and then you're done. Yeah. 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 So um, there was, a, it was so serious. Oh my God. I mean, and that, that school, they were the school of art. They actually have what they call the Iowa University School of Art and School of Art and Art History. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there are many things that are unique to their program that just were so healthy for me. One being that a lot of my friends were art historians, not artists. Of course, I had very dear friends that were artists, but be, having art historian friends meant that we would go and have a beer and we'd talk about art history concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was you know, the whole trajectory, for example, of the avant-garde, which is very important to me. I'm always thinking about that. Um, so the, uh, so uh, as far as that university goes, that combination was terrific. The other thing, the three years was uh, like, like another feast in a way, because uh, the first year I used up all the money I had saved and um, was looking for, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? But here the teaching comes in again, um, because these big universities often offer uh, teaching fellowships. Right, yes. So fortunately, I got a teaching fellowship. And uh, for the next two years, my, uh, you know, things, basically, I could support. Yeah. And so you were focused. So were you doing etching uh, um, uh, when you arrived? Yes, I started doing etching, uh, and I remember the uh, the teacher who who is actually a very uh, important, distinguished printmaker uh, named Lazansky, Mauricio Lazansky, coming in, looking at my uh, etchings, and saying, "You gotta loosen up, loosen up." <laughs> I thought to myself, I don't think so. I think I'm going to tighten up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So funny. What, what kind of things, like, what were you, what were your compositions of? What were you making? Uh, well, these were uh, drawings at the time. They were drawings of leaves and uh, roses and they were shriveling up in, mm -hmm. in reality. So, so that's what, you know, during that 
uh, first semester, first year at Iowa, that's what I was doing. But then uh, around the second uh, semester, I, I really thought I was going to get nowhere majoring in printmaking. Uh, I, I really felt like it was too limited uh, in terms of uh, me being an artist. So I changed my major to painting. Mm. And then uh, if you, I mean, I would love to send you a picture of my graduate thesis show. <laughs> oh, I would love to see that. Because now, you know, we're talking 19, uh, let's see, 1970, yeah. 71. And uh, what was happening in the art world was uh, conversations about, about media, like, you know, what is a painting? Danielle, should a painting be on the wall? Should it be on the floor? Does it have to be on a stretcher? Um, this was what was going on uh, in, in the art world. We were, we were reading the art magazines, of course. Yeah. And so consequently, if you were to see my graduate thesis show, it's actually quasi-sculptural installation with a lot of drawings on the wall. And that's my paint, that was, that was accepted as painting yeah uh, so uh yeah so that that's you know that's sort of my takeaway from Iowa it was um I think a very strong sense that there's no point in doing any of this unless you really believe um you have to do it and you have no choice mm -hmm. I love that that's not how I left art school. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. I, I left art school being told, you'll never be an artist. You should just quit. Oh, my God. And I did. I quit for 15 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish um, it was like an abusive relationship, kind of. It was very slow. It just like it took the full time of being there. And by the end, I was just broken and just like, oh, oh screw God. it. <laughs> I know. And what, then I had to, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, oh. well, I've actually said it before. It was at the university oh. of Victoria in Canada. Okay. I'm Canadian. And, um, it was just very much the wrong school for me. Uh, yeah. it was very, very, so this was in the early nineties. It was super conceptual, right? I should have gone somewhere that was more practical. Like I wanted to learn how to do all the stuff. Right. And this right. was early 90s. So it was very like everything was a giant abstract. Right. And a lot of talk about that abstract. Yes. You know, and I was like, uh, I, I mean, I had had such a quiet little like grew up in a tiny town that was like a juicy fruit commercial. I had nothing to say. I was, you know, 1920. I had nothing to say. And so it was just a super, super the wrong place for me. And they let me know that. <laughs> loudly wow. and it just broke me and it took uh I mean not till I started the jealous curator and writing about other artists that I kind of found my way back to making art myself and they planted a lot of things in my head like at a very impressionable age right where they where I they you know I couldn't do sculpture I I wasn't good at 3d I should focus on 2d um and I, I believed all of those things. So I love when you said that that guy told you to loosen up and you're like, oh, I think I'll tighten up <laughs> because I, I, I did that a little bit at the beginning. And then, like I said, you know, like you get told something enough times, uh huh, you start to believe it. And so I just finally believed like, oh, I can't be an artist 
Wow. I ended up becoming a graphic designer because I was like, at least I could still be creative and get paid. Right. right? But, um, right. Yeah. It was very disheartening and it's taken, you know, 20, 25 years to get back to being that art kid that I was effortlessly from birth, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so interesting when you have, when you're in the right place for you, how you, you know, you came out of there going, well, I just have to do it. Right. No, you it's know? true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked to hear what you're saying because, um, you know, that's, it's almost malpractice. I know, I know. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny though. I've told this story on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again. Um, so like 20 something years after graduating, I was the gels curator. I'd written a couple of books and I was doing, um, a talk mm -hmm. and in the talk, I tell this story about this final critique where he said, uh, in front of my entire painting class, um, quote unquote, you should never paint again. I was, a painting, I was a painting major about to graduate with a painting degree. Anyhow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And um, so anyway, 20 some odd years later, I'm, I'm doing this talk and I always tell the story. I never actually name the teacher. Um, mm -hmm. And, but I was in Victoria, which is like the scene of the crime, right? Doing this talking circuit when one of my books came out. And uh, so I tell the story. And there was maybe 80, 80 or 90 people at this thing. And so there was a book signing after. And so this one guy comes up and he leans in, we'll call the teacher Jim. So this guy <laughs> leans in and he goes, um, excuse me, was it Jim? And all the hairs on my arm stood up because nobody had ever, you know, I've told this story a bazillion times at different speaking events and nobody ever knew who I was talking about. And he was, and he called it out and he was like, was it this guy? And I was like, <gasps> And I said, oh my God, yes. And he goes, I was in your class. I remember that happening. And I was like, oh my God. And then he said, yeah, he said, he told me I couldn't be an artist either. So I became an architect. Oh my God. I was God. like, what? So we keep on talking and we're all, you know, commiserating. And then another woman came up and she was a year behind us. And she said, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, was it Jim? And we were both like, yes. And she's like, oh yeah, he told me I couldn't be an artist either. So I became a landscape designer. Jesus. Wow. And we were like, oh my God. So, you know, now we're all fired up. And then another woman came over who's, who's going to school there now. And she said, she was a graphic designer for years and then went back in her forties to do her BFA. And she said, um, excuse me, was it Jim? <laughs> and we were like, yeah. And so, you know, we're all high-fiving and hating him. And she's like, I just find that really hard to believe. And we were all like, huh? And she said, he's the most supportive, um, like amazing prof, because he's still there. Um, he's the most amazing, like blah, blah, blah. And we were all like, just jaws on the floor. We were like, what? So clearly he's become a better professor. Clearly he has learned the error of his ways. However, there was a whole generation of artists that were just like cut off at the knees. And I mean, I'm sure some were like, ah, screw you, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. But at an impressionable age, there were a lot of us at 19 or 20, apparently they were like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll quit. Oh, wow. Um, so it's just very interesting. And like, I don't think he would even know who I am now. Like I was, just, I wasn't an art star. I just blended in with everybody. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's just so interesting though, that all these years later, it's like, 
I'd be interested to have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of don't want to, but anyway. Right. Now, right. Sandy, I don't know how I've turned this, this episode into being my story, but I just thought it was just so interesting what different, uh, how yeah. we came out so differently. Well, um, yeah. But I want to well, know, I want to know, so you came out thinking, I have to do this. Did yeah. you pack up and head to New York or what did you do? I did. Uh, I, I uh, was living on very little money in graduate school and yeah. um uh and of course you're in iowa you know the midwest in a tiny little town so things were inexpensive um but it, it was a kind of um uh, uh dividing line if, if you will where between people uh, who were graduating in the uh, in the graduate school um whether they were going to go to new york to make it Right. And I, I put a, I put quotation marks around make it because that was a sort of very common phrase. And um, again, because of this sort of Midwestern, uh, which I love, I'm not, I'm really, I'm not criticizing it. I, I, I think it's a very nutritious attitude, um, but the suspicion of inauthenticity mm-hmm. um, which is, which is what making it is. In other words, you're going there to make it, to be in, you know, not to, not to really create art, um, but to be in the magazines and sell stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but there again, you know, yes, I'd have that attitude aimed at me, you know, actually by my fellow uh, students. And I would just, who cares, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it didn't bother me. Um, so I ended up with my uh, dear friend, uh, one, of, one of my friends, I had a circle, a small circle of friends. And the two of us, uh, Ted Jordan and I, went to New York. We literally uh, got in his station wagon and packed up our, uh, <laughs> our precious uh, 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 artworks, you know, that we had, that we had exhibited for, you know, the, the the show, the graduation show, and we we drove across the country uh, to New York. And um, had you been there uh, before? No, I had, I had, but only um, to get on the boat to go over to Paris. So wow. I, there was, yeah, there wasn't much of a memory from that. Um, but we we had prepared for it. So during that era, which was the newspaper era. Uh, the Village Voice era, mm-hmm. um, we scoured the Village Voice looking for a loft, right? Because this is the heyday of the loft world. It's by that time, the third generation going into the lofts there in Soho, but we, but it was still quite real. So we were able to um, cobble together, if you can imagine, $3,500 dollars. Right. Wow. In, in 1972, he and I, I, I remember that I won an award from some design uh, thing, some contest. Um, and I think it was 2000. In any event, we cobbled the money together. And before we even got there, we had already in mind that we're going to give these people $3,500 and we're going to move into that loft. <laughs> so, so we drive across the country um now i i have to say meanwhile my mother had gotten cancer which was horrible 
and we stopped at my home in Illinois to see her, but she was um, on, you know, on her deathbed. I mean, she was not deathbed, but I mean, she, her, her illness was very extreme at that point, mm-hmm. but we stopped there and then we kept going um, to New York and we indeed ended up uh, living together just for a couple of months, actually, but right in the heart of Soho on Wooster Street, 101 Wooster Street. Wow. Um, and what w- we could see through the back window, it was still very deserted. I mean, on, on the weekends, the, the uh, some of the artists would get baseball teams together <laughs> and play baseball in, in the empty parking lots. Wow. You know, I mean, it was just, it was so um, uh, like, a frontier land, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you kind of learned like how to wire, put wires together and wire things because nothing was <laughs> legitimate at all. So you go into a loft, which is this commercial space with nothing. And the more creative people um, would somehow manage to put a, a bathroom in there, a toilet, really not a real bathroom, but you know, a, a to- things like that, you know, yeah. everyone did it, did it on their own. Um, but looking out the back windows, um, Leo Castelli Gallery was just starting to open up that fall. And uh, so, you know, from there, from 72, uh, 73, 74, you know, every year that whole area became more and more um, uh, cultivated. But at the time, there were no art galleries other than Paula Cooper, no restaurants, no nothing there. Wow. And yeah. did you love it or were you, or what did you think? I didn't love it. Um, but I thought I was in the right place. Yeah. I, I mean, I was ready. I was really ready to do battle. I mean, yeah. I really saw, I mean, because of all the art history, I, I, I sort of thought of, uh, what I was going to do as, as a journey, as having forward motion and evolution, you know? So, um, <clears throat> putting myself in, in that place was part of, you know, create, creating that, that journey, if you will, you know? Yeah. Um, And uh, it too was, um, I mean, there was a lot of conversation going on, right? Like hundreds of artists and everyone was an artist. A lot of attitudes, a lot of different attitudes, just yeah. very, very interesting because there again, you know, uh, you you are in a kind of uh, a vegetable situation of all, con- you could go in any direction, right? Wh- where are you yeah. going to, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and I, I just felt that was the richest thing for me was to be able to have that choice, you know, to see all these things. And then within that complexity to choose a kind of commitment. Right. So, and so what was that commitment at that time? Were you, was your camera out now? No, no, not at all. I thought (laughs) photography was not creative at all. I I never studied photography. Uh, uh, There was a photography department at Iowa and uh, those people were doing black and white work and they were, um, uh, still working in a little bit of not so much Ansel Adams, but uh, uh, minor white 
had, mm -hmm. I, I believe was teaching at, um, where was he teaching, Yale or Harvard? MIT, I think, MIT. So um, in any event, they, that's the kind of work they were doing, which did not interest me at all because there was no color. Right. And uh, the first thing I remember about media for myself is that's the trouble with sculpture too. I mean, how many, I studied sculpture, you know, all everywhere, lots of sculpture from an art history point of view, but I never saw much color. And I think that that was what kept like pushing me in a direction was I have to have color. I have to have the ability to do color. Um, so no, no camera. Um, but what did happen is my friend um, actually became uh, disenchanted with, with the, the New York uh, art world, art scene, and he left. Oh. So I, I was, uh, I had to find another place to live because it was too expensive for me. Uh, so I moved over to Little Italy, which is near Wooster Street, but at that time, not at all in Soho. And I rented, rented an apartment in a, a tenement house that was uh, still uh, had uh, family members of, um, of Italians who had come over Wow, uh, Italy. I was the only non-Italian person in the, uh, I think there were 10 apartments, something oh like gosh. that. It must've smelled good in there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I loved them too. I mean, they were really nice, very kind, and uh, I didn't have any problems, but um, money again, right? Money, I mean, money, it matters. It, it really does matter. And- Especially uh, in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everywhere. I mean, yeah. <laughs> some money, you know, it's an exchange right. of value. Yeah. You may, you, know, you can crit criticize it all you want, but it, it's an exchange of value um, so that you don't have to go out and harvest your own food and do, you know, all this right. stuff. So anyway, uh, in, uh, so there I was, my friend had left and I found this apartment and while I was there, I was doing um, odds and ends. So uh, not looking for a full-time job. At that time, what artists would do is if, they, if, if you were a man, you would do construction. And that's what all the male artists did was, you know, work constructing in these uh, lofts, you know, building mm. lofts and all that, that kind of stuff. Uh, me, the women, a lot of them anyway, uh, did what was called paste up and mechanicals. So it was like, no sooner did I arrive there, right, into Soho with my friend, we're meeting artists, and the next thing is, well, you know, I can teach you paste up and mechanicals because we're all trying to survive here, you know. So uh, what it is, is no longer used because it's prior to digital. Um, right. But if you were meticulous, you could do it which I could at that time. And you just would paste up all the printed matter for a page and paste it up so that it could, I guess it's photographed or something in magazines. Right. It's called, it was called Paste Up and Mechanicals. I actually got hired to do that in a few different places. And I worked for other artists as well. Uh, I can remember gessoing somebody's canvas and sanding it down, um, you know, just crazy things. I even answered an ad for go-go dancing in, uh, in the Village Voice. 
um, because I was thinking back to my days of, uh, of the $15 an hour cake decorating. Yeah. <laughs> so going, okay, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this could be something where I'd make a lot of money short period of time and then have five days off during the week, right. To, to do the art. Um, but after a couple of nights where, well, they would pick you up and, um, then drive you out to New Jersey, where I now live, <laughs> Jersey City. And they drive you out to these bars in Jersey, in New Jersey. And you would then uh, stand on the bar and dance around, like in a go-go fashion. Um, and there was one night when we, they, and then they pick you up to go home. There was one night when the language and the conversation between the driver, who is a, a, a guy, and someone else in the car had something to do with bumping somebody off that I just thought, I am in over my head here. You know, this, this, is, not, this is not good. Um, but, the, you know, that, those are all the things that I did during my first, let's say, six to nine months in New York. But I could. Oh see, my God, I love it all so much. But but I could see, you know, right away. I could see that none of it was going to enable me to to do enough work as an artist. I mean, right. it was all exhausting. So I think about teaching again. Uh, yep. <laughs> and uh, so I um. I remember going to the library and getting, I, I, I believe they probably still have it, uh, like a list of all of the colleges and universities in the United States. And so I got all of these names and addresses and I sat down for a few days and wrote out and put in my, uh, my resume, uh, wrote out all of these uh, employment uh, requests, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in the art department. And um, I actually got two offers out of that. Wow. Um, and, you know, because it's all pre, um, you know, it's pre-digital completely. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting to think back. I mean, they just call you up. Yeah. I mean, they don't send you an email. No, there was no email, you know. Yeah. Um, so... I was offered two, two jobs, one in New Jersey and one in Hartford, Connecticut. <gasps> and to, to kind of go back, circle back to your, your question of what, what kind of art was I thinking about? So I go up to uh, speak with the people in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, so it's the Hartford Art School. It would be 1973. And um, I'm, you know, met by... Uh, probably four or five people, almost exactly my age. Uh, one woman, two or three men, uh, you know, quite a few people. And I, I could hear right away in the curriculum and in um, what they were interested in was conceptual art. Mm. And it just so happened that I was interested in it as well because in Iowa, it was always matter over mind. You know, in Iowa, it was always right. stuff, you know. Yep. Um, now I'm in an environment where it's mind over matter, which was closer to where what I was interested in uh, at, at that time. 
And that's why I decided to teach there at the Hartford Art School in Hartford, Connecticut. And you could pull out your bobby socks and loafers and you were good to go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What was good for me, what was healthy about the teaching was that it put me in the role of being at least somewhat of an artist. Right. As opposed to, as opposed to go-go dancing, uh, you know, or, um, potentially uh, being bumped off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a job with pace of pace up and mechanicals with Norcross cards, you know, yeah, that, you know, none of that had the same level of, um, self-esteem that, uh, that, that teaching at the college level had. So, in that sense, it was good for me for a short period of time. Uh, I was only there for three years. So um, to your point about uh, this focus of mind over matter versus matter over mind, this was a school that had been captured uh, aesthetically by this younger generation, all had gotten out of graduate school pretty much 71, 72, 73. And they all were slaves to conceptualism. Mm-hmm. I loved it for one year because, I mean, this is what I was interested in. So it gave me, you know, gave me a context and everybody was reading philosophy. I myself was, <laughs> was taking philosophy courses while I was teaching. I mean, it was intense and it was um, deep. It was so deep. I mean, they used like words like heuristic, you know, uh, and uh, I mean, I can't even, you know, it's just unbelievable, uh, you know, what went on. And I mean, there were, there was particularly one person who always made me feel terrible, you know, like lesser than, not, not smart enough. Um, uh, so that was the general vibe over the uh, the three years was uh, you can never be smart enough, right? Mm. And the work that was being done, like down the road, like Hartford, New York, it's not that far away. That's the kind of art really that was being celebrated as well. I mean, uh, there were shows where no work was on the on the walls, and and um, the artist was masturbating under the under the staircase. So, uh, you know, I mean, it was a very extreme time uh, in terms of that relationship between uh, the object and the thought behind it. Yeah. Uh, What is art? Yeah. 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 And and so I actually became disenchanted with 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 uh, uh, with that proportion, meaning that the that the object didn't matter as much as as the uh, philosophy. Mm. And I, I saw the cruelty in the, uh, in the education. I, I saw it, you know, I mean, I saw uh, young students who simply came to art school to draw, they would cry. I mean, what is that, right? That, I mean, that was cry. me, that was me, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I just, uh, I quit. I mean, I, I, I resigned and uh, I, I remember actually speaking with Klaus Oldenburg, if you can, of all people, oh my gosh. Uh, because I had somehow sent him a letter asking if he needed an assistant. Um, so I actually, he was very kind and I went and met with him and, 
told him what was going on. And he uh, basically said, well, you know, I really can't offer you <laughs> what, you're, what you're getting from teaching, you know. So he kind of was discouraging, uh, you know, to hire me. Um, but I was kind I was thrashing around Danielle, not really knowing, you know, how can I, how it's the same problem we all have. I mean, how can I get enough money uh, to support myself and have enough time? Yeah. To, it's time and money. Yeah. So uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, during my three years at uh, the University of Hartford, I was always looking for another teaching job. That was just something I just did every year. Sent out all those letters, you know, hundreds of letters. And um, so lo and behold, the third year at, at the University of Hartford, I'm thinking that I'm going to just go down to New York and struggle. Um, Dingling, the phone rings in the, uh, in the office, the art office, the art, art department office. And it's, it's for me. And the person on the other end is from... Newark College of Arts and Sciences. And then he mentions Rutgers. Mm. <laughs> and I'm and I'm going, God, I mean, I I mean, I didn't say this to him, but I'm going, teaching again? You know, so um I just, you know, I listened to him and he said, Well, we did a search and we were looking for a particular kind of person. We just didn't find it. And I'm really not happy with the finalists finalists that we have. So would you like to come down and uh, interview for it? And I thought, well, okay, you know, I don't care. I'll, I'll <laughs> do it. So, so um, I'm, I'm sort of uh, part of my uh, thinking about the world is that it's always going to collapse. Maybe that comes from, you know, being alone in the hospital. I don't know, but I'm mm -hmm. always like, uh, overcompensating. So I, uh, had a slide projector. So I brought my own slide projector in the car and drove down to New Jersey, um, to this place called Rutgers, uh, Newark college of arts and sciences. Cause I'm going, it must be a really bad school. I mean, why would they call me, you know? Um, so I interviewed uh, for the job and I mean, I just told them, you know, all of my interests and what I, you know, what I have, what I had done, which was, you know, very multidisciplinary, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I had done printmaking, painting, sculpture, you know, all these different things. Photo I was even teaching photography, by the way, at Hartford Art School. Okay. So, so they hired me, <laughs> long story short. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that's my teaching story. And, you know, it's a never ending struggle. Uh, I yeah. mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, labor over it. Um, but it is, uh, a never ending struggle because at least for me, I just am still, um, concerned about authenticity. I'm still concerned that whatever it is I'm doing is really what I want to be doing as an artist. Um, and that means I need a lot of time. I mean, I can't just go into the classroom and teach something and then leave and make art. I mean, it, it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> and I hear you hear that from so many people because yeah. it is a very common thing for artists to teach because exactly this story, like you make enough money to live. 
Right. But then the flip side of it is teaching takes so much time. Exactly. That now you've got the money, but now you, how do you find the time to do the things that you want to do? Right. Yeah. And so you were, were you still living in New York, but then driving to, or like taking the subway or whatever to school? Um, Yes and no. So you mean uh, up in Hartford or down? Yeah. uh, When you went to um, Rutgers, did you, could you live in? Yeah. um, yeah. Good. That was a big plus. I mean, that was like reality number one is because Hartford was painful. I mean, it's three hours away. Yeah. Um, And I tried having an apartment up there. I was so lonely. I had no boyfriends, no nothing. You know, it's a, it's a very uh, quiet city, Hartford very conservative looking. I I mean, I don't know politically. I just mean visually it's, you know, it's austere. Right. Well, and from Um, going from Soho and being surrounded by a gazillion artists playing baseball, like, yeah, it's a very different thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I went through a year up there of having both. I had an apartment up there in Hartford and an apartment back in New York. Um, But, you know, I mean, after the third year, you know, I, I resigned. Um, and I would, I mean, all I can say is fate, fate was kind because realistically, I have no idea what would I have done? I, I mean, really, yeah. you know, yeah. be sanding other people's paintings. I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, so um, when you were in the New York um, world, so you, now you're back, you're teaching, but now you're, were you part of any groups like, um, cause we both of course know Peter Coyne yes. and Peter was telling me that she sort of around the same time when she showed up in New York, um, mm-hmm. joined a bunch of like crit groups and discussion groups so that she could, you know, find those people. Did you do any of that kind of stuff? No, no. Um, I was still, um, the two experiences, the one of Iowa, meaning don't talk about it, just go over there and do it. So that coupled with my disenchantment with Hartford Art School conceptualism led me to keep my mouth shut, more Mm. or less, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I still uh, believe for myself, that's the, that's the most sure way to um, allow your inner self to find itself yeah um i mean there was a period of there was a a period of time when i was very confused uh and i had already been making art and everything uh and i just said you know what i'm not going to even read anything anymore Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm gonna have nothing to do with anything uh i don't want any information going in me at all uh tabula rasa and that's kind of periodically what I, what I go through, which I believe really comes from Iowa. Yeah, uh, I felt so, exactly uh, the same. I, I uh, felt exactly the same. I think it was the disenchantment of art school. And it was just like, once I started making again, it was like, I did start reading and I did start poking around. And it was just like, ah, like, it was making me feel like a crazy person. I was jumping around and changing my style based on what different articles were saying was selling and whatever. And I was like, okay, like there is no, there's nothing genuine. There's nothing that I am putting into this as me. 
Right. You know, right. and so I did just stop reading stuff and, and engaging that way because I was like, I need to figure out what I want to say and what I want to do and how I want to do it. And it's so interesting that you had that same sort of feeling. I, I'm, I mean, you're the first person that I've ever talked to about this. And I'm kind of amazed that you had the same, you actually followed that same, you know, behavior. And yeah. it worked for you, right? It yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 Probably not as fast as it worked for you. <laughs> well, but I don't know. but you know I, it, it has and I still like exactly what you said I still do that and every now and then it's like I just have to tap out and be like nope I need to think about like what is this about for me and um mm -hmm. and, and I love that that's where you kept pushing yourself is to be like I have to be authentic I have to you have to and it's true you have to care about what you're doing otherwise there's so many distractions like money and sales and um uh, opinion pieces and articles and it's just like ah like you if mm -hmm. you can't yeah. be the artist you want to be if you're not making what you want to make right right I mean I I mean even now you know at, at my age I'm still hoping to get back to um what it what drove me to go to the University of Iowa in 1970 I mean you know to get back to that state Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember sitting in the student uh, lounge, these big, big, large, you know, student lounge thing at the University of Iowa and and looking around and thinking, this is heaven. This really I mean, I've never had this experience ever. And it felt like heaven. You know, it mm -hmm. was very, very uh, exhilarating. Mm -hmm. um, Sandy, I've, I've had you for an hour and a half. We haven't talked about your art yet. Okay. Well, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Can I, will you, do you still have time to keep talking to me? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm oh, not good. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, I mean, your work is so, I mean, that's why I'm a fan. It's so iconically you. Like, you can't see any of your pieces without going, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Um, how do you get there? Like, what was the first repetition piece or like what I, how, yeah I just can't wrap my head around how you were like oh here's an idea <laughs> five billion squirrels in a room like what how, how do you go from etching to getting yourself there and then that's a crazy question to ask because I realize it's not a one word answer but like what was the first thing that you made sort of in the world where you're in now that you were like, this is something. Um, your corn. Well, pardon me. What? Your little, your corn. Your, you know, the the plates with the corn on it, all in the patterns. Um. Well, those were those were good. Um. But before that, um, I had a complicated, uh, a complicated uh, back and forth in my mind about. Um, <clears throat> the function of art in, in our society, because I, 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 I sort of in my heart, and even now, uh, you know, I mean, I think it is somewhat questionable what exactly it, it's doing in the culture. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know what it's doing for us, you know, or for me, but what it's actually doing, you know, in, in the culture. And that sort of analysis of course came from all my 
study of art history because when you study art history you study that like mm -hmm. you know uh the uh, sistine chapel of course was you know integrated uh in that culture at that time um and so my struggle was with with uh, filmmaking filmmaking mm -hmm. so um uh but uh so i would make films i mean i did the stop action film at smith uh and then later um i would do summer uh i did a summer workshop at nyu all while teaching at, at the Hartford art school and so i had this kind of uh yin yang thing of um alone in the studio what am i doing and making a movie and um surrounded by aggressive people who are all struggling for power because that's really what movie movie making feels like right. uh, and so uh to try to kind of develop this idea so so the problem the problem that i faced being in new york amongst all of the different conversations artistic conversations was what what am i experiencing what which you and i just talked about am i experiencing you know another worldliness am i um what am i giving myself to experience and so i started to to do work that was meditative mm. um and it was it the the dates would be i still have some of these paintings, quote unquote, but they were, um, uh, and they were kind of coincidental with some, some conceptualism. Um, I would sh sharpen a pencil once and then spend a week making dots on a canvas and the pencil lead would wear down. So the, uh, the dots would get bigger and bigger mm. until I, until there was no more canvas left. Mm. So, um, the, again, this type of work, when you look at it, is you know it's very akin to other people's work at the time. So uh, you know it, it may sound a little um, avant-garde right now talking about it, but at the time it was quite typical uh, of a small uh, small aspect of the art world. Uh, I would um, sharpen a pencil and do as many laps on a piece of paper as I could. So I would just like spend two hours just wearing down the pencil um so the uh the idea there was um to make marks to uh, figure out a, a way a, a framework within which i could make marks right mm -hmm. um and i ended up thinking this is boring um and you certainly didn't have any color in there no color yeah. and uh all a lot of thinking you know a lot of uh whatever you want to call it um you know being alone with yourself um you know when you're making work like that that's got no intention whatsoever except to continue making marks uh you've got a lot of room in your mind to for whatever yeah. and i just i did it for quite a while i think it was a couple of years and um and it was an empty, kind of an emptying out. A very important sort of phrase for me was a kind of emptying out of <clears throat> really of art history, of, uh, of philosophy, all of that. And then uh, what came back in was 
color and mm. photography. So in while all while I'm at Hartford, Hartford Art School, I start taking pictures with a mm. camera. I know nothing about technique or anything. I'm just, you know, oh, I don't know, you know, take, take this picture. I did a, I did a performance um, uh, with 25 pounds of jelly beans and 25 pounds of gumdrops. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> okay, so that, that was sort of my take on conceptualism. In other words, all of my interest in it was never fully serious. It was always a little kind of critique, right? Mm -hmm. Humor or whatever, ironic, irony. Um, but, um, but that performance exists today for me to talk to you about it in the form of photographs. So I started to appreciate photography really through conceptual art. Mm. Um, I mean, I could have done that performance as many people did during that period of time and there are no pictures. So right. it's really just a story. Um, the fact that I took up this camera and started taking pictures, it just started to kind of take hold in a very primal, simple way of um, making up stories. So uh, thinking back to my first year at Rutgers, I finished with the boring work of dots all over and, you know, uh, persistence, if you will, persistence. Mm -hmm. And I'm now interested in a picture. Hello. <laughs> I mean, a re within a rectangle, there's a, you can make a picture. <laughs> so, you know, I went to Smith College. I went to Paris, France. I went to graduate <laughs> school and I never made a picture. Really, really. I never, never was, never was in a situation in education where I ever made a picture that the, that the teacher actually talked about, hey, you're going to make a picture. Um, so, so it really was this like, oh my God, of course, you know, what have I been doing all these years? It's a picture. It's a rectangle. It's a picture. And, and I can do anything I want inside there. Uh, and that was, that was really the kind of defining, uh, defining point for me. So I'm in I'm down in, I'm in Newark and um, I'm teaching some photography and teaching all kinds of things there, um, painting, drawing. I remember drawing, intro to drawing. But um, meanwhile that I, you know, I'm understanding this picture and being interested in, um, like in photography, there is technique. Like, you know, I have my MFA in painting, but I was never taught any technique whatsoever. Right. right. Yes. Now, there are there are schools that teach technique. I don't mean there aren't, but mine did not. So yeah. um, so here I am now. Here's a discipline where there is technique. I mean, if I want this area to be sharper or this to look this way or what kind of film or the lens. I mean, it was just like it was just like uh, um, a, uh, a, a coming upon a completely new landscape that I could learn from, frankly. Yeah, it's like a trade, like you have to learn the actual skills. Right. Yeah. Right. And I loved the respect, which still exists, the respect in the medium for the skills. Yeah. 
Um, so I started to make pictures basically. And um, I, I would go to, uh, go to the mall and get, uh, get dolls and get, look around at things. And um, by this time um, I had a boyfriend and we were living together and we lived in upstate New York for the summer. And mm. over that summer, I started to take pictures and I also did drawings. So if you could, you know, you asked me about the corn. So if you can imagine um, that I'm going to uh, make a picture and the picture is going to have, let's say, a toaster in it and a doll or whatever, um, I would do a drawing and I'd be kind of disappointed in the fact that the drawing wouldn't be able to commu communicate the textures that I saw, mm. you know, in reality. Uh, and so through my disappointment with the drawings, I then decided that I needed to get better at photography so I could describe the world more accurately. Um, mm. and, and so um, the uh, kind of repetition that you saw or in those early works was actually more about if I can enter into a whole other conversation commercialism because um, when I was learning about photography technique the surest way to see technique in action is through advertising photography and I loved the fact that everybody knows advertising photography you know it's it's not like in a museum it, right. it's something that we all everybody knows so now wow magic now it's as if I'm making movies, but I'm not making movies. I'm making these still pictures, but they are directly related to the culture, right. um, which, which really wasn't happening for me in the repetition of the dots on, on canvas. So, um, so I actually started to uh, seriously study commercial photography on my own, but, you know, by buy all kinds of uh, chemicals and, and uh, cameras. And, um, and that's when I started after, after I did the, uh, there's a body of work uh, that I did in a mobile home in upstate New York, where my husband and I lived at that time. And I used the mobile home interior as part of my background. Oh. Um, so that is a series of, uh, of work that's out there, you know, that's, that exists. Um, that's the first series of photography that I did. And that was, that's dated 77, 1977. Okay. I was Googling all of this because I was like trying to figure out the first stuff and the uh -huh. most recent stuff. And I was like, and then I ended up down like this crazy rabbit hole of all your work. And I'm like, you know what? I'm interviewing her. I'll just ask her. <laughs> uh, oh, but the thing at the time, the thing that was really fun is that, um, I mean, if I think of myself as a Mary contrary, you know, <laughs> if you tell me one thing, I'm just going to turn around and do the opposite. I mean, where that came from, I really don't know, but that's really very much how I am. And uh, so what was going on in the fine art photo world in 1976, 77, 78 is, uh, was to me 
crashingly boring. I mean, it was these black and white pictures. At the largest, they were 11 by 14. You know, that was big. Oh. And, um, and I just thought, I mean, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not doing it. So I went right into color and advertising strategies, you know, in terms of composition, uh, depth of field, so many different things. And in 1978, that's where the food still lifes came in because I was studying, for example, um, liquor advertisements. Mm -hmm. And the, I remember noticing, oh my goodness, the labels aren't on straight. What am I going to do about that? You mean I have to go back? And that's what people did then. Right. They would go back and buy four or five bottles, you know? Um, I mean, I did a piece called uh, Peas on a Plate, Yeah, right? And, yeah. and it's all these peas. But I just was laughing all the way because I had to find the perfect pea each time, right? <laughs> you don't want camera, a dented pea. Well, the camera is relentless, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. It's really not natural at all. The still camera is not natural. You, your eye does not just look at one thing forever. You know, yeah. So that kind of relentless staring, I just thought, oh, this is so much fun, you know. And that—that <laughs> that was the. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it does. Oh my gosh! And you know what's so funny is that when I quit for all those years, I went into advertising. I worked in advertising for years. Oh my uh, god. Yeah, uh -huh. as a as a designer, and I have been on so many photo shoots. One of our clients was a shoe store, a shoe company, <laughs> and trying to get. Oh my God, you would spend, you could spend half an hour photographing the side of one shoe because you'd be like, you'd look at the proof and you'd be like, oh, hang on, right. the, the little bow has a bend right. in it. And then you've got somebody there with like a hot press trying to like uncrimp the bow or whatever. And that's just so funny. That is so much the reality of it. Yeah, even, even now, I mean, I mean, of course there's, there's still that same, you know, very high technique artificiality going yeah. on. Um, but with Photoshop, you know, some of these issues, you know, are true. gone. Yes, that's so, true. Yeah, that's totally true. Uh, and so, very big yeah. so what was, um, see, now I don't have to Google it. I'm just going to ask you, what was the first, like, full installation set up? with people and things what, what what was your first thing that you did like that um well let's see i did the still lives and um then i moved my studio so so i'm living in new york teaching in at rutgers and i'm uh my apartment is is a small apartment and so i rent a uh, a room that I used to photograph the, uh, the food still lives. Mm -hmm. um, then I decided to move my studio from there to a place closer to where I lived, which was actually an apartment two buildings down on Elizabeth Street. Mm. So, um, so I moved my quote unquote studio um, into an apartment and used that apartment as my framework really for the next few years wow. so yeah so I was in this apartment and it was a very uh you know 
abandoned apartment. I, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, uh, we would go into these apartments everywhere in the Lower East Side of New York and, and there were layers and layers of linoleum, you know, yeah. on the floor. Um, and uh, the, you know, wallpaper over wallpaper, but all badly done. So it was, it was just very distressed which meant to me that I was free to do anything I wanted. Because yeah. It was, yeah. So, um, so I'm in this apartment and that gave me the idea of using the room as an important part of what's in the picture because the food still lifes are really about a tabletop. Yeah. But a room is kind of just, for me, it was like, a very natural evolution to, oh, okay, now I'm just going to move the camera back a little and I'm going to photograph in this small living room. So I'm photographing in this small living room, basically, and I'm looking for, well, what's going to be in there, you know? Um, and Ooh, let I, me guess. Go Can ahead. I guess? Can I guess yeah. what the first one was? Go ahead. Germs are everywhere? No. Oh. Okay, go on. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the first one uh, was spoons. So in, uh, and spoons is dated. Oh, yes. Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 80, uh, uh, spoons is dated uh, 1979. Okay. So um, I had neighbors downstairs. They were both artists. One of them was in spoons, <clears throat> is the guy in spoons. Okay. Um, but uh, the found object, uh, you know, again, these sort of fragments of art history floating through your mind, right? Yeah. The found object. So I, I just loved going to the five and 10 as a child. Um, my grandmother would take us to her, her church bazaars and we would see all these, you know, little uh, crocheted little things. It was just magical for me. So going to, at that time on 34th Street in New York, there was a Woolworths. So mm. I'd go up to Woolworths to get inspiration. I would just walk around and I saw these plastic spoons and I just bought a whole bunch of them. <laughs> and I, so I hung the spoons on the wall, you know, without a lot of intent. I mean, I'm just going to do it, put it up, you know. So I took the picture without anyone in it. And um, I, again, just it just intuiting, you know, you're not sure what you're doing. You, you know, you... I think one of the uh, sort of biggest issues we have as artists is um, when are you done or oh, what gosh. is, you know, what, is, what is success, you know? Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you stop what you're doing because you've succeeded? Um, so I just felt like it wasn't enough to just have a picture of the spoons. Cause remember I had done the food, so right. why not? Yeah. Um, but I, um, I remember uh, thinking that it was, it felt very close to George Siegel's work, the sculptor, which mm. was all white figures. Um, Cause this particular piece has pink, pink and blue spoons and the, and the whole room is white. Um, so I asked my friend if he would be in it and he, he did, you know, he did. Uh, and I just felt as though, boom, that really, was an important new thing because in photography, if you isolate the subject matter from scale, 
the viewer really doesn't quite know what they're looking at. So, yeah. so for example, you know, without the, without my friend in the room of spoons, the room of spoons could be a tiny little room, you know, with right. little miniature spoons, but now there's a person there, boom, you know, magically now, okay, my, you know, I get it. I know where I am. I'm in a real room. So um, that, that kind of was a very quick um, sort of uh, uh, understanding for me of, of now. Okay. So from there, then I did uh, a piece with, with um, hangers, plastic yes. hangers. Yeah. And um, all along during all that period, they were always friends of mine art fellow artists or whatever you know to be in the pictures and then really the big and no sculpture at all right just finding things lots of found objects painting and and playing around with the camera in this sort of serious commercial way and uh then uh i i had in mind to do similar kind of I'm still in the living room, the same room that I've done the spoons and the hangers. And I want to do a picture with a cat. <laughs> and I, you know, I was doing uh, technically long exposures. They were anywhere from 10 seconds to 20 seconds long. And a, a real cat would be blurry. It just wouldn't happen. So I kind of had to think about, well, so where am I going to get a cat? And, and I thought about, um, I thought, I did think about going back up to Woolworths and looking around for figurines uh, because they, they are out there, you know, there are figurines uh, in, in the mass, in mass culture of, of cats. Yeah. And I just thought, I really don't want to go in that direction because I don't want to make fun of cats. Because it seemed to me that um, mass produced, uh, mass produced uh, tchotchkes have, they have a kind of meaning in themselves, which we don't think about, but it's there. And a lot of times it, it is a um, sort of a cynical relationship or a diminished relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said to myself, well, you have talent. <laughs> I just say that. <laughs> and so I'm going, okay, when you were at Smith, you took a sculpture class. Oh so gosh. all you have to do is just go get some chicken wire and some plaster and start making a cat, you know? I, I mean, I just thought I'm gonna make one cat. Seriously, one cat. Um, and I, so I'm in this apartment, it's like um, a tenement apartment, you know, there's a bathtub in the kitchen with a board over the bathtub that you, that I, that you work on, you know? They used to eat on that, that's how they yeah, I, ate, yeah. Because yeah. Um, you could economize the plumbing that way you only had the plumbing going to one area of the apartment um so anyway that's the type of apartment it was and uh, so i have this plaster and you know and i'm talented and yeah i i can do this i know how to you know i know what cats look like 
and I'm scrunching the chicken wire, which was really horrible. I mean, so painful, you know, that the chicken wire wire, but yeah. yeah, so I do one and I plaster, you know, and, and, uh, at first I thought that the most important thing was movement with the cats. They had to look like they were actually moving. So they would dynamize the space. Right. They weren't just sitting like a tchotchke. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I, uh, was, made this one cat and I just knew right away this was really not a good a good sculpture you know it was not (laughs) not going to work I mean it was just something that had four legs it was very very clunky looking Um, so without thinking too much I just made another one because I wanted to get better right I mean Mm -hmm. that one's not working Um, I just need to work harder so I made another one and that one was maybe better, maybe not. Um, So then I made a third one and (laughs) then a fourth one. And I think about after the fifth or sixth one, I just remember turning around one day, uh, seriously, Danielle, turning around one day in the studio and looking at six or seven plaster cats on the floor and thinking, boy, they really look so much more alive with, you know, with uh, together. Yeah, each other. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was it, you know. Um, so oh from that sort of, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a aha moment, I then made uh, some, probably about 30 um, plaster cats getting better. I did get better. I, lo- I definitely liked some of them better than others. And, <clears throat> and I threw out the ones that I really hated. Because <laughs> the other thing I have with my work is that I have tremendous feelings of hatred for it, as well as feelings of, okay, it's all right. But when I don't like what I'm doing, it's really very intense feeling of hatred. Me too. Uh, uh, it's just so real, you know. It's but scary. you know what's funny is that it took me forever to be okay with throwing things away. Um, were were you okay with throwing things away? Yeah, I was. Yeah, not a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a problem when you hate something but you feel like you can't throw it away. Puts right. A bit of a. Bit I of can't a actually. Tornado. <laughs> yeah. So how do you get it out of your mind? Well, now I throw things away, but for a long time, it would just paralyze me because I felt like I couldn't go forward. Yeah. I I kept trying to work with the things that I hated instead of being like, this isn't working. Right. Smash it and start again or do whatever. I just, I would just then do nothing. Yeah. Think and think and think and try and I would try and solve it in my head as opposed to trying to solve it in the studio. Um, Hmm. And actually working with PETA has been really helpful that way. And just like allowing myself to be like, nope, not working. Try Uh this, you know, and um, that has been very, very helpful. But yeah, I'm just, I was just curious because I know a lot of um, artists will say that, that they either have a really hard time tossing something that's not, that they've made. Right. Or other artists who are like, oh yeah, I have no problem at all. Right. Right. I just wanted to ask. Okay. So you got rid of the cats that were not working. Right. So were they I, green I, yet or were they all just white plaster? They were white, but, okay. um, but the, the issue of success comes yeah. into play um, because, you know, what was I trying to do? 
I mean, I, I, I was bothered by um, being a sort of, uh, by making high art, fine art that didn't relate to um, popular culture. I tried filmmaking and, um, uh, you know, the, what I was doing, I mean, who's looking at it? You know, some fellow artists, right? Mm. And I've been through three years of, um, uh, of conceptual art as well, you know, very, very, you know, uh, theoretical stuff. So um, here I am throwing out, like not all of them at once because, you know, you don't want to be too obvious. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, garbage in New York is um, a very loaded thing. Right. It tells a story. Oh, my God. So uh, anyway, uh, so I, I believe I would throw out about two or three every now and then. And so uh, one time I remember throwing a couple in the trash and then I go up into the studio and I looked out the front window and I saw some people taking them out of the trash. Oh my God. And, and I'm going, that is success. I'm, <laughs> I'm done now. Okay. That, that to me, that's everything, you know, because I didn't value them. I, you know, but somebody else looked at them and thought, they were of value. That was like a huge, uh, huge uh, feeling for me, huge yeah. observation. Um, and uh, even to this day, um, there is one of those plaster cats in Soho on somebody's uh, window sill. Really? Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I wonder if they know it's yours. I don't know. I mean, I've heard that the person is a collector or an architect or something. Yeah. And who I, I just don't know. Oh my God. But it's still there. That's um, crazy. Yeah. And it's one of the very early ones. I mean, it, it's really crude, you know, a lot of plaster, very thick plaster. So, wow. That's uh, so cool. Like that is an art history artifact like this this is what I minored in art history and I I and it's partly why I have the podcast too is that my favorite part of art history was finding out that stuff mm -hmm. you know, like finding out the behind the scenes that like you know we see your work here radioactive cats 1980 mm -hmm. um that's what's going to be in the in the textbooks right but mm -hmm. then you find out that you toss them in the dumpster and saw somebody take them and now there's one, one clunky one sitting in Soho somewhere. I love those stories. And so I had a few art history profs that knew the weirdest stuff. And those were my favorite classes because I was like, I want to know the stuff behind the thing. And so that's why I started the podcast because I'm like, you guys are all still alive. Everybody in the art history books is dead. I can't ask any follow-ups, you know? And uh, so that's what I love about the podcast is finding out these weird things and then when we're all done and gone, that cat is going to be a weird relic <laughs> of art history on somebody's windowsill. Well, uh, you know, I mean, I took a picture of it, so. Oh, good. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's so funny? I, when I was looking at all your work and the squirrels and, and everything, I was like, is that resin? What, what is that stuff? And so have you, are all of your animals built out of plaster and chicken wire? No, no, I, I, um, I really use anything, you know. Oh, okay. So, oh yeah, because some of them are clay. 
Right. Some are clay um, and some are clay and fired. Like the next piece after uh, the cats is Revenge of the Goldfish. Yes. And, okay. So those are actual, uh, actually um, fired clay. Oh. Each one. Yeah, each one. And so where did you do that? The same place, the same apartment. But where did you go and fire the, did you just go, or did you have a kiln in there too? No, no. Um, I uh, took a class uh, in, well, in New York. Okay, this would be 1980, 1980, 81. And um, there was a, a ceramics uh, store with studios below. Okay, uh, yes. About, yeah, about a 15 minute walk from where I was living in New York, downtown in, in, on the edge of Soho. And um, I just, you know, this was just one of those cases where I just thought to myself, after doing the cats, I definitely don't want to do plaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, you know, it was like, with, you know, a lot of, it was painful working with chicken wire, frankly. So, yeah. and, and the plaster as well. So um, plaster is very wonderful, but, uh, be that as it may, it was like, okay, I did this piece with plaster. Now what else is there? And I saw, I decided that ceramics would work, might work. So I took a course, a hand building class at, at that place, um, mm -hmm. Aldwin Pottery downstairs. And they had a honeycomb of professional potters that had like small, like six foot square studios. And I rented one of those. And I spent the summer making fish out of clay. <laughs> and, and why fish? What, how, how did you go from cats to fish? I have no idea. I will, I'll never know. I'll really never know. <laughs> oh um, my God. I, and I, so I, that, that, setup is still in that same apartment no uh oh yes if, if if you think of the photograph of radioactive cats yeah and the photograph of revenge of the goldfish they are in the same room they were taken in the same room is that wow. what you mean yeah 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 oh my gosh that's just like magic well are you starting to show this stuff and are people starting to like respond Yes, I mean, uh, even the food still lifes um, uh, were appreciated, mm -hmm. uh, but in the photography world. Um, mm. So early on for me, uh, I was exhibiting in uh, within that uh, frame of reference. My first uh, show was at Castelli uh, Graphics with those it wasn't a one-person show but but some of those food still lifes were in a summer show mm. um, and then after doing you know doing the, the food still lifes i uh, that's when i started to do the cats and then had a relationship with that director and showed him uh radioactive cats and and they actually started to sell those prints um you know, just, oh. just hanging in the office. And so after that, I had an exhibition at that gallery and, uh, it, and it was um, kind of curious because, I mean, I had worked for six months just making the fish. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, what do you show, right? Or what do you, you know? Yeah. I mean, you show one photograph 
I don't think yeah. so. So, so it was kind of like early on, I, I thought of this sort of duplicity because I do love sculpture. I really do. I love, I love the physical world. Uh, and so I, I, you know, didn't want to th what throw out the fish. I mean, yeah, yeah. Cats. So, um, so I did start exhibiting the cats also as an installation um, in Hartford, mm -hmm. actually, at an alternative space. So beginning in really in 1980, I started to exhibit the installations. Wow. And so, and in those situations, were the people in there? No, <clears throat> no. Because people do show up later. And mm. like, aren't there real people sometimes like in your installations? Well, um, I would first do the photograph with high tech yeah. in that studio, right? In the, yeah. in the apartment with a person selected to be in it. Right. Know, to create a, so in Radioactive Cats, there's a very old man sitting down and a woman who is actually my landlady at the time <laughs> walking into the refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> so those people were there for the photograph, but then after the photograph, I then exhibit the sculptures. Right, without, with, the, without the people. Right, right. But then, yeah, yeah I'm skipping ahead, but sure. cocktail party. Right. Now there's mannequins in there. Right, and real people. And real people. Right. So right. on like the opening night of, of a show, are there real people covered in cheese puffs standing in there? No, no. Okay. No, it, it, all of that is just for the camera. Okay. I was like, okay, how do you stand okay. that still with that many cheese puffs without eating them all off of yourself? Oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> by the time I was, by the time I was working with the, the cheese puffs, I had uh, a busy little studio going on with some, some assistants. You, you get help. Yeah. Cause um, that was like the early nineties, right? Right. So a lot of those pieces from the 90s were done with people helping me because it, it is a lot of work, you know, to yeah. glue all those uh, cheese doodles on there. Uh, <laughs> so, oh uh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm also interested in, um, you know, that experience, meaning, you know, other people helping you or not helping you, you know, what is your role in terms of the work getting done? You know, I, think I that, find that so interesting too. Yeah. How do uh, you, well, your work looks like you always do it to me. I always do it. Um, but I'm getting to a point, like, it's so funny because with my cigarettes, my clay cigarettes, mm -hmm. um, I did them because uh, the work at the time, I was sort of making these altars, like these altars um, to my broken uterus. And um, I love the weird little altars in Venice that like people just set up on their windowsills, like, you know, with a picture of a saint and some plastic flowers, but then somebody will put like a soda can <laughs> on the windowsill <laughs> as they walk by and you know, right. there's a cigarette butt. And I, I just love the beauty of the garbage and the beautiful things all together because that's sort of how I picture my reproductive 
system. Uh, It gave me my son, but at the same time, I've got fibroids and cysts and I've had multiple surgeries. So it's sort of this like trash can that produced something beautiful. So I was doing those. The work has completely changed since, which is, uh, which I was sort of talking about earlier, like loving that evolution of just shutting everything out and thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, but I'd also been told in school that, you know, I, I wasn't good at 3d. So I've been terrified of clay because I don't don't know how to do clay. And Uh so, um, a friend of mine, who's an amazing, um, sculptor was like, just buy a box of clay. And I was like, well, I don't have a kiln. And she's like, just buy air drying clay and just play with it. And I was like, okay. So I bought it. I had it for eight months or something before I even opened it. Like how stupid anyway. So I was like, I kind of like a cigarette to put into this altar. So I'm like looking, you know, in like all the thrift shops or like, you know, like Walmart and stuff to see if I can find pretend cigarettes. And I was like, I could probably just make one. So I made the first cigarette. Oh, wow. And I loved it. Uh And I made seven of them and I sort of put them on this little altar and I looked at them and I was like, I need thousands of these. Uh, <laughs> seven, seven is not enough. Okay. <laughs> and so now I, I have over 2000 of them. Oh um, my God. Talk about meditation, right? Like I've had so many amazing meditative moments, just rolling these clay cigarettes and then you have to paint them and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm at the point now where it's like, I don't want anyone else to make them. I want to be the one that makes them, but mm-hmm. I need somebody to come and like, um, put medium on them to like, you know, or like epoxy or something just to keep them, um, you know, archival, whatever. I need them to oh. be coded, but I've got 2000 right. of them. I don't feel like coding 2000 cigarettes. Right. Exactly. In hindsight, I should have done it as I was making them, but I did not. So mm-hmm. now I'm at a point where I'm like, I would really like to get some help doing that stuff. But then comes the, what you just said, like, okay, but at what point like, what does that mean about the art? Like when it's not 100% your hand, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like I, it's, I just find it such an interesting subject, like, because so many artists I know now do work with assistance because you have to, if you're going to right. you know, cover right. all these cheese doodles, um, yeah. cause you coded all of them. Right. And they're still holding up. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was, I mean, some of my pieces using food have not survived, but that one has yeah it's yeah, still it's crazy isn't it's that crazy actually, yeah we'll all be so, gone and cockroaches and cheese doodles will be left <laughs> well okay. it's, it's really epoxy yeah. it's the epoxy that that makes it you know somewhat able to continue that's right. what you probably want to put on your um cigarettes yeah that's what i was thinking too um yeah so i got to figure that out but okay and i also make out of clay uh-huh. food gum oh wow okay and and so that's how somebody said oh you must love um sandy's germs are everywhere piece and i was like i don't know what that is uh-huh Good. um and somebody sent me uh my friend penny lane she she's taught about you for years and years she's a super super fan and she sent me the picture and i was like oh my god that's exactly i have you know hundreds and hundreds of pieces of this chewed gum but it's clay and yours is actually chewed gum Right, right. Who chewed all that gum, Sandy? Um, me and one assistant. <laughs> my, poor, oh. my poor assistant. <laughs> Talk yeah. about a sore jaw. So, what? Well, we did it. I mean, 
I, I, I've always been sensitive to the idea of, um, you know, not hurting yourself when you make your work, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. I mean, really, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I just don't believe that's a good direction to go in. So anyway, um, so the chewed gum uh, came about, mainly I was interested in my signature. And if it's gonna be a signature, it's gonna show your teeth. And so the first part of the whole thing, almost in every case of my work, is a period where I'm trying things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we had to find, I had to find actually, um, but you know, assistants would go and buy gum. The first thing is, you know, what, what actually looks like chewed gum? I mean, surprisingly, yeah. a lot, uh, the, uh, the non-sugar gum does not look like gum. If, mm -hmm. if you let it dry, um, the sugarless stuff. So uh, we we ended up with a particular brand. A lot of it is just gray and not pink. So you know they're also you know it's like okay you know you're you're trying to get make your your object look like your uh, your internal vision. You know what right. I mean? What you think chewed gum looks what like? You think yeah. right which is very similar to commercial thinking, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, um, I, uh, what we ended up doing is um, first we figured out, okay, it's this particular gum, then you buy it, buy all the gum, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, we had a, we had trays of water and we would take the gum, just myself and this one young lady, and lay out the gum before chewing it and let it soften up, but not too long. Cause then if you leave it too long, the color goes out too. Oh. So, so you just leave it in, <laughs> soften it up and then put it in your mouth once, just once and make a, you know, make a, a thump, yeah. it, and then put it down. So we'd have a, a you know, place to put it and we wouldn't do it all day. I mean, you know, that's, unhealthy so that's what we did though it's just her and me and that and wow that yeah so, so cool okay it's gum time yeah half an I'm, hour I, of chomping yeah i mean that's very close to the decorating cakes on the assembly line I totally think. like that's why when you were telling that story i was like that's so interesting you know just like that assembly line of creation you're right right yep so yep. amazing. Um, so I've seen lots of like amazing, like, you know, your work is traveling. There's, you know, um, retrospective stuff. Um, the last thing I could find was snowflakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing right now? Uh, right now, with once COVID hit, um, I... I, I have such mixed feelings about how it's affected me. Um, yeah. it, in a lot of ways, it's been totally fine and almost normal because mm -hmm. I'm alone, you know, uh, I mean, my husband's in the house, but we have a fairly large house, four stories and, you know, so, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not going out much. Right. I mean, yeah. that's basically, but um, so 
I, I just, I really feel a little bit lost in terms of how COVID has affected me. But what I've been doing is I was cleaning up in the early days of COVID. I, I was finished with the piece that you're talking about um, called Winter. Mm -hmm. And I noticed as I was like working through my stuff that, hey, you know, I have all these negatives. I have like from these photo shoots, like yeah. from Revenge of the Goldfish, I put, I picked out one, but there are maybe in 10 or 20. Right. And in looking back and going through the uh, negatives, I decided that some of them were actually better than the one I picked. Mm, <laughs> or, so interesting. Or, yeah. Or at least I liked them. And so that's what I've been working on. I've been, uh, it's a series called Outtakes and they are smaller prints of these well-known, well-known images. And, um, and I'm printing them myself, which is really nice, really, really fun. I mean, they're, uh, 16 by 20 inches mm. and, um, uh, so, and they're framed slightly differently. So, so the negative, um, you know, the negative is what it is, eight, eight, eight by 10 inches or four by five inches. Um, so if I find one that I like, for example, it's usually because of what the people are doing, the models, what they are doing. Mm. Um, when I started doing these installations with narrative uh, people kind of performing inside the installation. When I started doing those photographs, I was thinking about as if I were a commercial photographer. And a commercial photographer or art director is going to be acutely aware of the viewer and how the viewer engages with the picture. Um, and my original thinking back in 1980 and 1990 was that the viewer is going to immediately look at the person in the picture. So a lot of the dynamic of why I posed people the way I did back in the 80s and 90s was to bury them inside the sort of plethora uh, of all of the, the stuff that I mm -hmm. made, you know, fish or cats, whatever, um, as a kind of reflection really of reality. I mean, that's how life is. I mean, I'm sitting here and I am like surrounded by a, a plethora, you know, of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but going back through and looking at, um, okay, well, this model is now over here, or the two, two models look like they're interacting, that kind of makes, for me, makes the picture, gives it a second life. I mean, yeah. it's just a different picture, different picture. So, so that's what I've been doing is uh, uh, this series. I've, I'm finishing up, actually. I'm working today on uh, one that's called The Wedding with Strawberry Jam and Marmalade from 1994. Yeah. And uh, the original picture was uh, edited and, and chosen where the two people are look like they're walking towards each other um, as if they might have a head on collision. 
you know? Oh, yes. They're not, yeah, they're not looking at each other or anything. Um, then the one I'm using for the outtakes, the two people look like they're whispering off in a corner. So it's oh. really different. Yeah, it's quite different. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a nice, I, I'm into small. I'm really into small now, hmm. you know? I mean, I just see, I, I see a kind of migration in the, especially in photography towards enormous, you know, yes. I mean, yep. they, things can't really, they can't get any bigger than they are. now. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. just, you know, they, they are, they fill, fill the whole wall. Uh, and to me, um, to me, that work then has to be in a museum or a very special uh, place, right, mm -hmm. to be uh, shown. And so to me, that's kind of very limiting of, of who can see and have your work. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Yeah, so I'm kind of just, that's I'm doing so, small. That's, yeah. what, that's how I want to end, end this conversation. I'm doing small. I love that. That's a lovely way. <laughs> to go oh my gosh this was I loved my face hurts from smiling I've been smiling this entire time so nice to meet you even though we're on zoom and to hear all these stories um let's see what was my favorite I quite like the go-go dancing these are the tidbits that won't be in the art history books. Right. Two, two or three nights of go-go dancing yeah. in, in New Jersey, you know? Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. Um, thank you so much for taking all of this time to, to tell me all these amazing stories. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's been a total pleasure because I love the fact that I started following you and looking at your work on my own. Yeah. Right? through Instagram, I uh, never saw any of your work in person uh, or any bigger than my phone. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just loved the freshness of it um, and the, uh, uh, you know, the sort of um, carefree way that you were working. It, it always came through to me in, in mm. all of your postings. So um, keep on going. Danielle. Thank you. I will. I've got big, big plans for myself and I'm no, I'm not scared anymore. So they're all happening. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will. And I, I hope that we'll keep in touch. Oh, we will. We okay? will. Yes. I would absolutely love that. Good. All right. Well, good luck um, with uh, your, your negative sorting and okay. um, I'll keep my eye out for, uh, for, do you know when and where, like, do you have a plan for where that's going to get shown? No, which is another gift to myself, you know, yeah. um, not working on an agenda. Yes. So, yeah, I really do want to try to uh, get work that is not, you know, on an escalator going towards a due date. Yeah, so. another another uh, icing factory. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'll keep an eye on your Instagram feed right. and, uh, and, and yeah. see when that happens. Wonderful. All Wonderful. right. Okay. All right. I will uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Look in your DM on Instagram. I'm going to write you. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. How fabulous was that? So many amazing stories from an art icon. 
What was your favorite? Oh my word, before she even started talking about art, she had me with the baby face cakes <laughs> and the go-go dancing. I mean, come on, seriously, the art history books are not gonna tell you about that. They're just not. Oh, and how about the cats that she tossed out that were scooped up by random people or chewing all of that gum? Insane, I can't believe I got to just hear all that. <sighs> anyway, I clearly loved every single minute of that supersized episode, and I hope you did too. All of the pieces Sandy and I talked about are over on my site, so pop over to thejealouscurator.com slash blog to see everything. And if you're interested in submitting to Create Magazine's Call for Art, remember the deadline is January 30th, and you can learn more at createmagazine.com slash submit. All right, well, I think that was an excellent start to a new year. Thank you so much to Sandy for sharing so many amazing, hilarious, inspiring, art-filled stories. And thank you to you so much for listening. I will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Art for Your Ear. See you then. Mm -hmm.